We are um, in this series on Mark, looking at intentions, and we have the privilege this morning of hearing from one of our own. Uh, I'm going to invite Sana Hughes-Lauer to come on up. You guys would like to welcome Sana. Uh, Sana and I had the opportunity to talk uh, briefly about what she was thinking about, about what she was planning, and uh, <clears throat> when she first was sent the scripture, uh, I think she had a quick moment, and she'll share with you, uh, but I think she had a quick moment where when she and I sat down, I said, how are you feeling about this? She said, yeah, absolutely, Legion, the demoniac, no problem, it's all good. And the kids are going to be in service. This should be fun. Yeah, great, great. I'm good. Um, so uh, I have been praying for Sana as she has prepared. Um, I have had the opportunity to hear a little bit of what God has put on her heart. Um, and I was really encouraged, even just over coffee, hearing what was on her heart. So I'm really excited to hear this morning. Um, can I pray for you as we start? God, we're just so grateful uh, for the wisdom that you have placed through your Holy Spirit in our community, and that we get to hear from one of our own this morning. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would light Sana up with the words, um, and just from her own life experience, from the goodness of how she has lived, surrendered, and desiring to know you that we would glean some of that richness and goodness this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, new community. <laughs> like Jerusha said, my name is Sana. If we have not met, um, yeah, I'm a member of this community alongside my husband, Graham. Uh, we have been a part of this community for many years uh, in kind of different seasons. We were here for several years, left for several years, and have been back for the last like year and a half or so, uh, which is a gift to us. You all are a gift to us, and we love this church very, very much. Um, I actually work, my day job in the city is in uh, storytelling and branding at a local studio here. Um, I work alongside a couple other members of the Newcom family, in fact, uh, which is to say <laughs> that I am not a preacher or a theologian, by vocational training or by any kind of formal education. Um, so I'm excited to learn alongside of you this morning, and I'm exploring alongside of you this morning, and I'm asking the same questions that you are, um, but I'm excited that we get to spend this time together. Let's go ahead and uh, read our scripture passage, passage this morning. So like Drusha said, we are still in the book of Mark. We are in chapter 5 this morning. If you brought a Bible with you, um, Mark is the second gospel of Jesus, or it's actually the second book in the New Testament as well. Um, or you can pull out your phone, or it will be on the screen behind me as well. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He had lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, 
and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, stampeded down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man possessed by demons sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen what had happened to the man possessed by demons and to the swine reported it. They began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was listening to a podcast by Kate Bowler, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School, and in the podcast, she interviews her colleague at Duke, uh, Stanley Hauerwas. If you haven't heard the name Stanley Hauerwas before, he's one of the most renowned theologians of our modern era. He's also a person who's acutely familiar with the problem of pain. And he talks about a little bit in that a little bit in the episode. And while it's worth listening to, I'm not going to go into the details of the content. Uh, but Hauerwas shares one particular thought that I want to use as our guiding principle this morning. He says, The demand for explanation results in lives that are fundamentally boring. Boring because you have to still your desire for beauty. The ability to live well is the ability to live without explanation. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this thought alone, more than I have time for this morning. But I want it to be our guide, because if you didn't pick up on it, the passage we just read is not an easy one to comprehend. In just 20 short verses, we have a confrontation with a demon, an intense exorcism, the collective death of 2,000 pigs, plenty of fear and chaos, a miraculous healing, and a new disciple of Jesus. If you're looking for an explanation 
or for answers this morning, I want to be blunt that I have none to offer. If you were looking for an easy lesson on basic human morality, or even better, you were hoping for a cat nap during this morning's talk, I'm afraid you've come to the wrong place. <laughs> I apologize, as I myself would rather be watching NFL football right now and not considering demonic forces and how we are supposed to apply a text that tells us of a God who chooses not only to address demons, but to cast them out and to call their victims into God's very family and ministry team. There are significant questions, not all of which we will get to this morning, as there's also significant redemption and healing in this morning's text. And is that not life in a nutshell? I don't think avoiding explanation here is equivalent to intellectual ignorance. Nor do I think that's what Harawas would say when he gave his original thought. We can and we should study something. We should learn the stories. We should engage the context. We should ask bold questions. But at the end of the day, sometimes the mysteries of God are greater than what our human minds can explain. I confess, I tried several times to sugarcoat or simplify this text. I was looking for some good progressive theologian who would tell me that this is really a figurative story about Jewish culture, and it probably didn't happen the way that we read it. I also confess, <laughs> as Drusha alluded to, that uh, earlier this summer when Russ asked me to speak, my ego clearly got the better of me. Um, as I've already mentioned, I am a novice preacher at best, and my lack of experience really showed when what I failed to do was actually read the text that he had told me I would be preaching on if I chose to. If I said yes, this would be the text I'd be preaching on. Uh, and before I gave him a direct answer, I actually failed to open that text and read it, which is, my friends, how I ended up speaking on a passage this morning that I quickly discovered in my research most experienced preachers don't really talk about, and children's Bibles especially avoid it, despite it being included in three of the four accounts we have of Jesus's life and ministry. But nonetheless, we're stuck together for the next few minutes. So if you're willing to open your minds and your souls to a bit of holy mystery with me, I think there's something worthwhile we can take away from this story this morning. Will you pray with me before we jump in? God of mystery, dwell with us this morning. Open our minds to the complexity of your goodness and open our hearts to the nudges of your love. Translate my word, spirit, into your message for us today. Amen. So a little refresher from last week, Jesus' disciples, prior to this story, have just been caught in a terrible storm on their way across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep, waves crash around them, they wake him up, he famously calms the storm, and the disciples at this point are both presumably traumatized and amazed, and now we've landed on dry land, greeted by an obviously possessed 
demon-possessed man. I would imagine and I would hope that this is just as uncomfortable for Jesus' disciples as it is for us to think about now. In some translations, this person is referred to as a demoniac, and he directly approaches Jesus. And the text draws a picture of what this means. He's been living among dead bodies. He's been chained up numerous times and is unable to be restrained. And he's actively harming himself. The scene is bleak and horrifying. The story in Mark 5 asks us to acknowledge and to confront the most evil evil of the world. While you, like me, may not be familiar with demons as interpersonal figures, I think we can broaden our lens here to the numerous demons that haunt our culture and our lives. We're no more comfortable with this so-called demoniac than we are with the folks who stand with cardboard signs on division most mornings. Or our friends who are incarcerated within a criminal justice system that can hardly seem just. Or children who receive terminal cancer diagnoses. These are the things that make our spines shudder and our eyes close, and for good reason. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And while we cannot and we will not make sense of this caliber of human misery, what's important is that Jesus does not ignore the suffering person here. That brings me to our first big idea that I want to explore this morning, which is that in the most evil and inhumane of circumstances, Jesus always sees the person. From all we can gather, this man has suffered many, many years and is notorious in his community for being an outcast. He has likely been without human touch or friendship for as long as anyone can remember. He has been ignored, ostracized, labeled as dangerous, deranged, and destitute. It's tempting to equate the condition of this man to someone with a modern-day DSM-identifiable mental illness. And while that could certainly be true, even partially, I want to be really careful about what we assume about the saints and the siblings among us who have struggled with mental health or who have received a mental health diagnosis. This text does not say that you are demon-possessed if you struggle with your mental health and if someone has ever misused this text and left, left you to interpret it that way, I am sorry. I think the other problem with simply watering down this demon as a missed mental health diagnosis takes away the power of evil here. The text explicitly says that this is a demon and like I said, I don't personally know much about demons, and it's intimidating for me to think about, but it is impossible to separate apparent evil and a clear source of evil from the heart of this story. This is presumably an extension of the devil itself being confronted by Jesus face to face. 
In the modernized translation of the message, the confrontation goes like this. When he, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus a long way off, he ran and bowed down in worship before him, then howled in protest. What business do you have, Jesus, son of the high God, messing with me? I swear to God, don't give me a hard time. For Jesus had just commanded the tormenting evil spirit, out, get out of the man. The man recognizes Jesus from a long way off, the translation says, and promptly identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus then calls to the demon, recognizing that the spirit at play here is not the man at all, but something otherworldly that has inhabited the man. Almost as if this is a familiar and recurring standoff. Think uh, Harry and Voldemort, or Batman and Joker, or Gandalf and Saruman. Jesus, called out by the demon, is tipped to who is behind this madness. And rather than write off this estranged person as society sees him, Jesus establishes the man as a victim and immediately addresses him as a person worthy of his attention and of his mercy. Jesus then does a very profound thing. He asks the demon his name. In modern psychology and emotional well-being practices, we know that naming something or identifying an issue is what gives us the power to begin addressing it. Many recovery programs and therapy programs are built on this principle. When we don't identify something by name, it can often fester and cause even deeper pain and corrosion. There's power in naming an emotion or an experience, just as there's power in calling a person directly by their name. What is your name? Jesus asks. My name is Legion, for we are many, responds the demon. A legion here is quite literally the term used to describe a group of about 6,000 Roman soldiers. Not only is this demon as aggressive as an army of soldiers, but we notice the very clear allusion to war here. This man has had war waged within him for years with the intensity of that of an army of 6,000. The demon, clearly aware of its powerlessness in this situation, begs not to die but to be sent to a herd of nearby swine, almost as if this demon is just scrambling for the nearby exit. What is the first thing I see? Send me there. Just get me out of this situation and this confrontation. And this is where the passage is extremely bizarre. It makes little sense to the modern reader, as you and I will probably rarely witness anything like it. In a wild turn of events, Jesus casts the demon to the pigs per its request. Jesus heals the man, and we are told that the man is now clothed and in his right mind. This sounds like a call for celebration, for worship, for thanksgiving. And yet we're told the crowd responds with fear. They're afraid. 
They cannot rationalize what they have just witnessed any more than we can rationalize this text, as their privilege has been explicitly threatened. If Jesus is here to make the most marginalized and outcast among us healthy and whole functioning members of society, then what else is he here to do? This brings us to this morning's second big idea. Jesus does not favor the privileged. He always favors the marginalized. Now notice I didn't say Jesus does not love the privileged. We can argue about this after. We know that Jesus loves everyone unconditionally. But if you read the Gospels for any amount of time, I think you'll find that Jesus has a huge soft spot for society's oddballs. In order to give more context to this idea, I actually want to go back to the beginning of the story. When Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat, they are on Gentile land. They have crossed the Sea of Galilee and have left a Jewish region to go to a Gentile one. And it's no secret throughout the Gospels that Jews and Gentiles are famously at odds with each other. And Jesus is supposed to be a good Jewish rabbi and follow carefully the ways of Jewish law. And he has once again pushed a boundary by entering a community that is Gentile with the intention of preaching and healing people who are quite explicitly not the people of God. Not only that, but he is immediately confronted by a man with an unclean spirit. Unclean being a very clear dog whistle here to a Jewish audience who knows exactly what is clean and unclean. And go figure, living among the dead is not kosher. And then we have the real kicker. We hear that there are swine nearby. For those who may have forgotten, interaction with pigs and any of their byproducts are strictly forbidden in the Jewish tradition. And thus we know that we're no longer in Jewish territory because of their very presence. Before a word has even been uttered in the narrative, Jesus has already done the unthinkable by getting off of the boat. If I'm a disciple of Jesus at this point, and I see us pull up to this spot, I'm probably thinking, what is this guy up to? We not only barely survived the ride over here, but now he wants to get off and talk to the Gentiles, and better yet, a deranged and unclean man. This can only end well. And if I'm a Gentile in the crowd at this point, I am probably thinking, who does this Jewish rabbi think he is? He needs to stay away. Oh God, there he goes talking to the lunatic who lives down in the cemetery by the lake. This is our land, our community. He needs to get out. I think it's easy to write off the crowd, to scoff at them, to assume if I had been in the Gerasenes that day, I would have immediately trusted and worshipped Jesus for such a miraculous and wonderful healing. But let's take a step back. This exorcism Jesus performs is strange not only because he doesn't just end the demon once and for all, but he sends them into a herd of 2,000 swine before they're driven into the water and die. I told you we were in for a weird morning. 
Again, we're in Gentile country in this story, which means that pigs are not the unclean animal that the Jews would know them to be. It would mean pigs are a form of livelihood and perhaps even currency in this culture. So in healing the one demoniac, Jesus has presumably and apparently hurt hundreds, if not thousands of others in the community who directly or indirectly rely on these swine for their well-being. Not only that, but now we have a lake full of dead pigs, which is not going to go over well with the local environmental association, let alone mothers who are going to try to go draw clean water for their children. This is now a community in crisis. And I think a narrow or angry interpretation of this text would say, see, this is the problem with Jesus. He just creates more problems for everyone else. And that's probably what these poor folks that day were thinking too. Yet a more nuanced interpretation urges us to recognize that Jesus is not here to make the comfortable more comfortable, whether it's the disciples or the farmers of the Gerasenes, but to put those who suffer out of their misery and call them into his family. He wants to go to the places that absolutely nobody thinks he should be and to make broken, twisted, and dark situations hopeful and whole. He bypasses the structures of society and goes straight for the individuals who have endured enough to know that they need a miraculous act of mercy to live. Y'all know the story of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? But yeah, thank you, kids. Uh, I was going to say, you probably saw the movie as a kid or perhaps read the book. Um, but the premise of this story is we have poor, forgotten, undeserving Charlie who not only wins a golden ticket by unwrapping it in his candy bar, and he gets this ticket to the most magical and sweet factory in all the city, but then we know it ends. He's eventually gifted this property as a new home for him and his entire poverty-stricken family. We love this story because it favors the underdog and the meager. We see Charlie's story held up against the backdrop of four other wildly entitled and spoiled children, and we immediately begin cheering for Charlie because we know that he is the only child in the story who knows he has nothing more to lose, only magic to gain. We love Charlie's story and so many like it in literature and movies. I'm sure you can think of many right now. And we are hardwired to love these stories because we were created by a God who revealed God's own self by becoming a poor, average, slightly odd Jewish rabbi with a propensity to touch the untouchable and go after those who had been all but forgotten by the structures in which they lived. A commentator and professor, professor named Micah Keel puts it this way. The kingdom values those who are flawed, not as a way of making the best of what we've got or making lemonade out of lemons, but because that seems to be the essence of its disposition. The kingdom of God is oriented toward those whose who society seems, deems flawed and keeps at arm's length. When the thing we fear most is transformed and brought directly into our midst, 
our natural inclination is fear and a reliance upon violence to rid ourselves of the change that we cannot explain. The kingdom of God is oriented toward those whom society deems flawed and keeps at an arm's length. I love that, and it makes me really uncomfortable as someone who benefits from massive societal privilege and is quite rarely held at an arm's length. As a follower of Jesus, then, I have two-ish options. One is to enjoy my perch and my place of privilege, demanding that those less privileged than I simply have not worked hard enough to have what I have, nor do they deserve handouts, let alone healing, especially at the expense of my resources or against my will. Or a second posture, I can take on this evidently more Christ-like posture, where I attempt to be a mere extension or reflection of Jesus himself in how I treat those around me, including those who make me uncomfortable, people I don't really want to think about or look at, and in how I spend my money, my time, my resources, and my vote. I want to close with one final big idea, and I'll keep it brief. The idea is this. We don't get to decide what or who good soil is or is not. Now, before I lose you, let's jump back a chapter to a few weeks ago where we explored this passage where Jesus tells this kind of odd parable about a farmer planting seed, and he says that some of it grows in rocks and it doesn't form good roots, some of it falls in weeds and it gets strangled out, and then some of it falls on good soil and it blossoms and produces a bountiful, beautiful harvest. After Jesus tells this story, his disciples are a little confused. They're lost. What is he even talking about? So Jesus explains this is people who hear Jesus' teachings, hear the good news, hear the gospel, and it all depends on kind of how it, how it grows in them and how they react to it. He finishes this kind of re-explanation to his disciples with this, and this is again from the message translation. He says, But the seed planted in the good earth, or the good soil, represent those who hear the word, embrace it, and produce a harvest beyond their wildest dreams. After Jesus heals the man at Gerasenes, he's said to be begging one more time. This time, he's not begging for his demons to be cast out. That's already happened. But he begs Jesus, it says, that he can follow him to the next destination and presumably be his friend. Jesus, who I always imagine is a very socially awkward person, doesn't let the man get in the boat. He says no, but he tells him this. Go home to your own people. Tell them your story, what the master did, and how he had mercy on you. The man went back and began to preach in the Ten Towns area, about what Jesus had done for him. This is the full circle moment in the story. 
the moment when we realize what's been possible all along, the moment when we see a glimpse of how the sequel may unfold. Keel again offers some insight. The story of the changed demoniac answers a question that lingered at the end of chapter four. Who is the good soil? The seed clearly has taken root in the demoniac, the least significant and least likely place imaginable. And in the demoniac, the reader finally meets an example of the good soil. So there it is. The good soil. The most unlikely of people in the most marginalized of statuses, flipping the social and religious order of the time completely upside down. The verse I read a second ago is also from the message translation, which translates the term the Decapolis as the ten towns. And we know that this is the region in which Jesus performed this miracle. And what we know about it is a part of the Greek community as ten cities uh, that served as a hub of economic, intellectual, and social vibrancy during the first century A.D. Rather than call this newly healed, passionate man into the boat with him, Jesus asks the man to stay exactly where he is and to tell his story. And we don't actually know how the story ends, other than that we know the man did it with gusto. He says he did. Because when God has mercy on you in a way that saves your life or the life of someone you love, it is damn near impossible to not say something about it. This is not going to be Jesus' final trip to the Decapolis. He's going to return. He's going to keep ministering to these people. And we know that a following of disciples grows in the region. As I was thinking about this, I smiled wondering if this healed man ever hosted Jesus and his disciples for dinner or reconnected when they would come back for future visits. We don't know. We can only guess. But what we do know is that come approximately 70 AD, about 40 years after this healing, Jerusalem will be attacked by Roman authority and many Christians will flee to where else but the Decapolis for a safe refuge. We never know how God is working or willing to work. The man healed in this morning's stories went years probably decades being overlooked, overlooked, ignored, unnamed. But God's favor and God's unbridled mercy loves to seek out those undeserving or those who most need it, depending on which way we look at it. And when it finds him, this man is asked one simple thing in return for his entire life being transformed. Tell your story. Tell your friends, tell your family, embody the good news. Be the good soil. And I think that's the call for us today as well. It doesn't require a particular skill or a degree or a change of location. Simply show up and be who you are, where you are. And trust that the one is in whose image we are made is using you, And you never know what seeds will sprout up 
because of it. Thanks be to God.